Freedom, love, justice. Three ideas our world loves dearly. But how well do we understand what it is that we love? And is it possible that our love of these things is leading us to places we do not really wish to go? In this series, we open up these issues in light of the Bible. In the Gospel of Jesus, we discover how these ideas have meanings that are much deeper than we could ever imagine. They show us the richness and beauty of what God has called us to in Christ. Father, we pray that as we open your word and read it now, that you would do your work by your spirit uh, in us, and we pray that uh, we would be responsive and um, live lives that obey and glorify Jesus. Amen. Hi, everyone. My name's Jess, and I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 56, um, 1 to 8, and that's found on page 733. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to the them besides those already gathered. Good evening. My name is Timothy, if I haven't met you before. And the second reading tonight comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. If you flick forward about 200 pages in the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1118. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and be brought into glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we have hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently.
Oh. Uh, good evening, uh, everybody. I'll just initially clarify, uh, after the service, um, I'm very happy to pray with anybody, uh, but I'm also, uh, I'm, I'm really just happy to answer questions as well. Uh, so don't feel you have to have some big kind of spiritual moment uh, in order to come along and um, I'll just be in this room. It says the mini hall on your service sheets, but that is uh, false. I'll go over here in this room. And if you just want to ask a question about uh, what I'm talking about here or just anything, really, um, I'd just be happy to talk to you. Uh, I'll head over there about 8.30. Um, if you're joining us just this evening for the first time in a while, we are uh, at, at the end of a series of three sermons um, that are about kind of big ideas uh, in our culture. And tonight we're looking at justice. Um, so let me pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you bless us this evening and uh, enable us to think clearly about the world we're a part of so that we may better live within it uh, and live within it ultimately from the position that your son Jesus allows us to have in him. Uh, Father, speak to us. Uh, and be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We refuse to believe. If I had a really awesome American accent, this would sound much better. We refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until there is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end but a beginning, and those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. Uh, do you know the speech this is from? Yeah, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Uh, he spoke those words 50 years, three months and six days ago. Uh, and they still ring in our ears. They stir us deeply. They stir us deeply because they appeal to an idea, an ideal that we hold very dear, uh, the ideal of justice. Justice matters to us. Uh, we would fight for it. At least, we hope we would. Without justice, we're sure no society could be worth living in, and we pity the societies uh, in which we feel justice is lacking. And we're proud of the achievements of justice in our own society, and we lament the ways in which we feel our culture and our society does still fall short of justice. But what is justice? What are our assumptions about it and how do we think about it? And are the ways that we think about it the only ways or even the best ways? Today in the third and final part of our series about ideas that we hold dear as a society, it's our task to think about justice to take a step back from it, as we have with freedom and love in previous weeks, and think about this ideal and consider it in the light of the Bible so that we make sure that the ideals that we love do not become idols 
that lead us astray. As we have before, as we have before let us begin from our own context. Uh, in our day, the idea of justice uh, has come to be dominated by one concept in particular. Can you guess what it is? Rights. Mentioned it already? Rights. As one scholar has put it, rights is rights language is, quote, the dominant grammar in which we do and speak justice in modern liberal societies. Now, in many, many ways, this is something to be really thankful for. The concept of human rights emerged into full flower in the wake of the catastrophic abuses of human dignity during and around the Second World War with the UN Declaration of Human Rights from 1948. And since then, the idea of human rights has done some wonderful things. It has become a standard to which people can be held to account, at least technically, a basis on which to advocate for change. Above all, it is a tool for defending those whose voice is so often silenced, the poor, the weak, the vulnerable. Uh, my sister Felicity works in the area of law and justice in Papua New Guinea, and she's told me of how useful the concept of human rights has been and is for advocating for change and for challenging injustice, particularly in the area of violence against women. And who could be anything but grateful for that, right? Now, I want this affirmation to be heard very clearly at the beginning of this sermon because I am going to go on to raise some questions about the language of rights. But before I do that, I want to make it clear that there are many things about the idea of human rights that are very good. In fact, in a way, my concern in this sermon is that we don't lose these good aspects of human rights. Because the problem is... There are aspects of rights language that threaten to undo it from within. To begin with, there's the way in which rights language keeps expanding to include things that are frankly ridiculous. Uh, for example, there were the Fijian workers, there's true stories, the Fijian workers who sought to have 30 minutes added to their lunch break because they were too tired at the end of the day to have sex. They claimed they had a right to a sex break. You could try that at work, uh, if you're married. Um, there was the man who had undergone a sex change who argued for the right of men who undergo sex changes to compete in women's athletic competitions, only to be opposed by those who argued that women had a human right to compete only against those who could pass a sex chromosome test. What do you do there? There were the university students in Michigan who um, claimed they had a human right to a co-ed toilet. Okay. Now we feel, I, th I hope you feel, I feel these claims are at least a little bit silly. Um, although they didn't seem, maybe they did, but I doubt they seemed that to the people who made them. But the problem is there's something about the language of rights and the logic of rights itself that leads it to this kind of infinite expansion. The idea of rights seems to inevitably push you beyond what we might see as more fundamental rights, like, say, the right to security of person or to not be enslaved, to other aspects of what we might call human flourishing, or at least what people, some people believe is human flourishing. 
And this tendency is there within the logic of rights from the very beginning. Uh, The UN Declaration of Human Rights, for example, begins with fundamental rights, but quickly moves, excuse me, quickly moves beyond that to broader freedoms, like the freedom of expression and property ownership. And then it moves on to various further entitlements, some of which, to be honest, might surprise you that they're in there. This one, for example, this is going to be on the slide. Thanks, Yo. Article 22, everyone as a member of society has the right to social security and is entitled to its realisation through national effort and international cooperation. It goes on. Or this one, Article 27, everyone has the right to freely participate in the cultural life of the community, to enjoy the arts and to share in scientific advancement and its benefits. I mean, that, that's quite a big claim. And then my favourite, the next one, Article 24, everyone has the right to rest and leisure, including reasonable limitation of working hours and periodic holidays with pay. Uh, Actually, I understand that it was an Australian Prime Minister who got that last bit in. There you go. Thank you, Australia, for that contribution. Uh, Now, I don't want to trivialise it, right? You can see how these things got there. I mean, these are things we can probably all agree we would like everybody to enjoy, can't we? And, you know, what would it do if we didn't say them? What would it mean if we didn't have them in there? Would we be saying it's okay not to worry about these things? Yet there's also something a bit funny, isn't there, about describing these things as rights. I mean, goals, if we said they were goals, fine. You know, but rights, things we're entitled to. And what's funny about that is that these things and, and some of the other things that uh, the Declaration includes, like the freedom to marry whom we choose, stable government, free education, the opportunity to engage in society, the chance to found a family, these are things we, we naturally feel, actually, that we ought to be profoundly and deeply thankful for. These seem to be, in a way, things that are are more gifts than rights. Uh, And there seems to be a mismatch between the language of rights and our sense that these are incredible privileges, in a way. It's also not hard to see how this kind of thing could lead you to the the sense of entitlement and the, 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 the kind of ugly aspects of entitlement and me demanding that people worry about with rights language. The difficulties go deeper, though. Uh, I said before that these are probably all things we can agree with, but of course that might not be the case. Not everybody actually believes in social security. Um, Although, I hope you do. I think it's good, but there you go. But of course, there are other things, other places where rights language very quickly bumps up against the question of who says who says these are human rights? On whose, exa- on whose authority, for example, are we told in Article 16 that, it's on the screen, the family is the natural and fundamental group unit of society and is entitled to protection by society and the state? Really? There would be many today who wouldn't agree with that at all. Uh, similarly, the more recent claim that people of the same sex have the right to marry one another has just been met by the objection from some others that, no, they don't. And you really quickly bump into this question of, well, who gets to say? On what basis 
do we get to work this out? And it's not an easy question to get around. For it is simply not the case that there is kind of overwhelming agreement in our world about what human beings are and what human flourishing involves. So this issue of who gets to say is highly problematic. Um, There are wider problems with rights language. We could go into this for a while. Uh, One big one that people pick up on is the the sense that it, it must end you up with kind of individualism. Because human rights always end up being about individual rights. And what does that do to other goods, cultures and communities and families? How do we stop them from being destroyed by this culture of individual entitlement? And what happens, how do you have rights alongside ideas of responsibility and duty? But there is another problem I just want to dwell on a little more, uh, which is that the concept of rights very often is not of much practical usefulness. Uh, What I mean is this, right? It's one thing to make the claim that somebody has a right to something. But it's quite another thing to know what is the right thing to do. Uh, In some cases, perhaps, that's easy to make that transfer. Uh, This person here has a right to not be enslaved, so you, slave owner, should set them free. Fairly simple, right? But in all sorts of other cases, it's far more complicated. All people, we're taught by the UNDHR, have a right to security in the event of unemployment. Article 25. Fine, okay, fine. But what if there simply wasn't enough money to do this? Uh, What if we as a society were to find ourselves in a situation where there just weren't enough resources to make that possible? What then? At this point, rights language can't help you anymore. All it can do is cast judgment on the inadequacy of the situation, like a disappointed piano teacher who only ever notices your mistakes. But that's a big problem. Because, of course, the issue of what can be done is is not a silly question. It's a very important question especially in our day when the question of resources is pressing and, when, and, and could become far more pressing with ecological crisis. The inadequacy of rights language to be kind of practically helpful then becomes a serious issue. All of this, I think, should make us wonder whether in our enthusiasm for human rights we may have left something out. Uh, There is much that is good and important in this idea. We know that. We're we're sure of that. Yet somehow something's gone amok. Perhaps there's more to justice than rights. Well, I want to invite you now to step back for a moment from the details of rights and think about the issue of justice as such. Uh, For I believe that the Bible's teaching about justice can put our thinking about rights in perspective and free us from some of its problems, and so actually help us think better about what we should do. So let's turn to the scriptures. I'm going to talk about the two passages we read, and also another one that will go on the screen. Um, You may like to have a Bible. uh, that, That could be helpful as I refer to them on the way. The Bible's account of justice begins from the claim that the world we live in is the creation of a good God who made it purposefully 
and who made it with an inherent natural order to it. The world, that is, has a kind of shape that is organic to it, uh, a way of things being in relation that makes it kind of right. Uh, Now, that's an abstract idea. Um, That's okay. Uh, The Bible actually describes this with the language of wisdom. Uh, It says, God made the world through wisdom. That is, he didn't make the world as just this kind of random material artifact that we can do what we want to. He made the whole creation with kind of a moral order to it. He made it with wisdom. Um, When he gave the wind its weight, the book of Job says, and apportioned out the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He He established it and searched it out. Now, this idea of there being a kind of natural order to the world is very weird in our day Uh, because we mostly see the world as kind of raw material out of which we can make what we will. Um, But the Bible doesn't see it that way. The Bible says that God made the world with a real kind of natural shape. And the opening chapters of the Bible describe this in terms of God making things according to their kinds um, and with particular purposes. Things are meant to exist in certain relations. Uh, The Psalms celebrate this uh, in all sorts of ways. Um, Psalm 104, for example, uh, celebrates the way, God, you have made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the animals of the forest come creeping out. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. People go out to their work and to their labor until evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Uh, Now, the Bible's not naive. It doesn't think that's a kind of simple thing and that it's all, all rosy. It knows the world's messed up. But it celebrates that there is this kind of way things naturally work. Now, within this order, human beings have a special place and dignity. Uh, Men and women are made, the Bible tells us, in the image of God and appointed by him to care for and rule the earth. Uh, They are the pinnacle of God's creation. Uh, They're called the delight of God's wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. And this special status means that the Bible is very alert to injustices done to human beings. As those made in God's image, human beings are precious and therefore they ought to receive special protections from the law. Uh, This is why there's much in the idea of human rights that the Bible deeply supports. Um, The idea of human rights has been and often still is an effective way of expressing and defending the unique status and preciousness of human beings, all human beings, within God's creation. However, the unique status and preciousness of human beings is in the Bible always connected to the wider picture, the sense of creation as an ordered whole. Human beings are special because they have a special place and purpose within God's whole creation. And this is why, in the Bible, the idea of justice is ultimately about far more than human rights. 
In the Bible, if I can put it this way, justice is really ultimately about creation in harmony. Uh, The Hebrew word shalom captures this. Uh, It's a word that means peace, but kind of peace in wholeness. That's the image of justice in the Bible. Creation at peace in wholeness. Uh, Creation set in order and right relation within itself and to God. And that means that justice is above all something we hope for. It's a hope. Uh, Because at present, of course, this is not how things are. Creation is not in harmony like this. Our first reading uh, showed that really clearly. Uh, Creation, Paul said, uh, is in bondage to decay and is currently groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Uh, Creation is distorted and is not as it should be. The hope, however, is that one day things will be set to rights. Harmony will be restored. Uh, the Bible has lots of pictures of this, and, and there's these beautiful pictures of peace, but one of my favorites is this one from Isaiah chapter 65. See, I will create, this is the Lord speaking, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will the days of my people. So will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain says the Lord. This, you see, this is, this is a picture of justice, what justice is really ultimately about, according to the Bible. The healing and perfecting of human life within the natural order. If I can put it this way, or actually as the Apostle Peter puts it, it's the hope not just of rights, but of righteousness. Now, it might be objected... Uh, that all this, you know, might is is rather lovely, beautiful, whatever. But it's far more practical, surely, than the far more impractical than the idea of rights, isn't it? After all, you know, and we, we accused human rights of being impractical. But it's one thing to say it's hard to know how to manage your scarce resources to look after asylum seekers. It's quite another thing to kind of work out how to make the lion eat straw with the ox. This is not exactly a practical vision, but actually that's a mistake. Because, of course, the whole point of this kind of hope is that it is not something we can bring about ourselves. It is something we must depend upon God for and that he alone can bring to pass. The Bible is very clear that true justice 
is a hope that is not within our reach and which we must, as Paul put it in our reading from Romans, we must wait for patiently. But, and this is the crucial point, that does not make it impractical. In fact, quite the opposite. We saw this in our first reading from Isaiah 56, where God calls his people, maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. You see, God's coming salvation, the promise of his justice or righteousness, is not a reason for inaction, but actually a motivation to do good, to to maintain justice and do what is right. And that's a pattern that's repeated constantly throughout the Bible. The waiting and hoping that Paul speaks of are not inactive. The person who waits in hope, rather, is the person who, as the New Testament puts it, is eager to do what is good. So uh, the person who is, as the saying has it, too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use, according to the Bible, is actually a person who's never really understood heaven at all has never really been captured by it. What hope does do, though, is give our action a kind of appropriate modesty. Because we know, you see, that the task of bringing about justice in the fullest sense is beyond us. And so we no longer demand that we somehow achieve it here and now. And instead, we're freed to focus our attention upon the good works that are within our power. Sustained by the promise that God will bring final and perfect justice, we are freed from the burden of bringing it about ourselves and enabled instead to do the good works that lie within our reach as we live our lives in the middle and the muddle of things. We're able, that is, to to truly act well within the moment that is given to us. That's actually quoting Gandalf, uh, but he was right at this point. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. But that's a a Christian thought. Uh, It's the same thought as is in Ephesians chapter 5, which says we need to watch carefully how we walk, not unwisely but wisely, redeeming the time. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. But of course all this is purely hypothetical and frankly irresponsible unless we have some reason to think that such a hope of perfect justice, of harmony, is anything more than wishful thinking. But that is exactly what Jesus Christ is about. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the news of how the promise that Isaiah recorded, that God's righteousness would soon be revealed, has been fulfilled. Uh, As we, if you're with us, we saw Paul say in Romans just a couple of weeks ago, in Romans chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been disclosed through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In Jesus Christ, you see, friends, God has acted to bring in his salvation. 
In his death on the cross, Jesus took upon himself and suffered the penalty for all that was wrong with the world. All the injustices in the world, everything we had done wrong. So that through his resurrection to new life, God would open the way to freedom and forgiveness and more than that, the liberation of creation from its bondage to decay, the redemption and healing of all God's world. Jesus Christ, you see, is the guarantee that the final and ultimate justice the Bible teaches us to hope for will one day be a reality. Because in his resurrection of the dead, it has already become a reality. It has already happened. God's justice has been revealed, has been manifested, so that our hope now can be filled with confidence, with certainty, and become, as Hebrews puts it, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a solid ground on which to stand and act in the present. Okay, well, where then does this leave our thinking about justice today? Uh, When I discussed rights language at the beginning, um, I noticed uh, the way it tended to expand and include more and more elaborate claims that go beyond basic human needs into the realm of human flourishing. Um, We're now in a position to better understand what's going on here, I think. The power of rights language, you see, lies in the fact that it catches hold of something deep and true about human nature. That all human beings are immensely precious and that they are made for far more than just survival. Rights language catches a glimpse of the truth the Bible teaches, that human beings are made in God's image and meant for profound fulfillment and freedom in his kingdom. This is the truth, actually, that rights language is is grasping at when it insists that these rights belong to all human beings and that they encompass issues as wide as spiritual fulfillment and prosperity and security. Rights language catches a glimpse of the fact that human beings have a dignity that is anchored in being made for eternal life. That's what makes the idea of rights beautiful and compelling, perhaps especially to Christians. But it's also what makes it dangerous because it can lead us to lose sight of the fact that true justice is the gift of God's grace and is something for which we must wait. It can lead us, that is, to lose sight of hope. What happens in the idea of human rights, you see, is that what is really almost a hope of heaven, a vision of flourishing for all human beings, that gets turned into a moral demand to be realized here and now. Human rights are presented to us not as a hope that we may rest in and wait for, but as a set of expectations we're called to meet and that we can demand for ourselves. And this creates two problems. On the one hand, it teaches us to expect too much from the present. 
the idea of human rights, because it keeps expanding beyond bare survival to wider ideas of flourishing, it creates expectations for the present that cannot possibly be achieved consistently. Uh, This is what leads to the sense of resentfulness and entitlement that can attach to human rights thinking because we feel that we, we ought to have these things. It is also why, as we noted at the beginning, rights language can end up continually standing over us in critical judgment, because our, meaning that our, our actions and those of others are destined to always be disappointing and inadequate. But when that happens, you end up going in one of two directions. Either you, you start to despair of ever meeting these requirements and you just give them up as idealistic goals. Or you start to become desperate, angry and impatient with others and willing to use whatever means you can to achieve these ends. Despair or desperation. And both of these attitudes, I think, are incredibly obvious in our culture. But both of them represent a failure to act well, a failure to do justice. So rights language can lead us to expect too much from the present. But ironically, it can also mean that we end up hoping for far too little. Because in order for human rights to function at all practically as a measure of justice, we have to narrow our focus and limit our expectations at least a little bit. We dare not hope for too much, you see. And so we get left with a vision of justice that excludes the non-human world and that doesn't really know how to get beyond individualism. Worse still, it can be a vision that is corrupted by our own perspective and our own faults, taking upon ourselves the task of defining what human flourishing looks, looks like we are very much capable of getting it wrong. And this is the worry that rights, that many people have, that rights can become really a kind of tool for social engineering, for the promotion of visions of what it is to be a human being that are profoundly problematic. In the end, you see, we can easily be left with a vision of human fulfillment that is much less than what the Bible teaches us to hope for. This, then, is the danger that lies within, at least I think lies within, the dominant way of thinking about justice in our world today, the danger of losing touch with what the Bible teaches, that justice is ultimately nothing less than the peace and wholeness of creation in harmony, and that by God's grace, not by our right, but by God's grace in Jesus Christ, that is incredibly, is something we may hope for with confidence and that can inspire us in the present to patiently do the good that is within our power, even in the face of difficulty and apparent hopelessness. The risk we run with rights, by contrast, is of hoping for far less and therefore demanding of ourselves and of others far more than we're capable of. Well, let's draw things to a close. Um, 
It's been another kind of long and abstract sermon. We'll finish these after this week. Uh, But I hope it has led us to think more carefully about this idea of justice in our world. But let's close, though, by thinking about does this, what, what does this do to our advocacy of rights? What, is there any way to think about rights in a positive way? Well, I've suggested that it's the hope of final justice that frees us to do justice here and now, uh, to do the good works that lie within our reach in the confidence that our efforts will be one day vindicated. And I just want to finish by sharing with you an example that actually comes from the civil rights movement uh, of doing, I think, just this. And it is, in fact, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech. Uh, There are two things that, when you read it, you really notice about this speech. The first is that it was richly and deeply anchored in a biblical vision of hope. Look at what he says. Uh, It's on the screen. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters as brothers. I have a dream today. I'm sorry I'm ruining this, but it's worth thinking about. I have a dream that one day, and here he's quoting Isaiah, Every valley shall be exalted, and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope, and this is the faith that I go back to the south with. Quoting Isaiah chapter 40. Elsewhere he quotes the prophet Amos. Martin Luther King Jr.'s advocacy of civil rights, you see, was deeply grounded in biblical hope. It was different to what I've been talking about, but this stuff did matter to him. And this was why his dream was for him not just a wish, but a hope and a faith. And this leads us to the second feature of King's speech that we must notice, which is that this hope meant that he refused to either despair or to act in desperation. There is a profound tone of joy and of patience that runs through his speech. Uh, Like in this moment, where he says, There is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to generate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. That is something that a hope in final justice can enable you to do. Uh, This speech, probably the most famous civil rights speech ever made, seems to me to be an extraordinary example of what it looks like to seek to do justice in the light of the promise of God's justice. And it shows us that if our pursuit of human rights can flow out of and be fed by and limited by the wider biblical hope of righteousness, of creation in harmony, then it, maybe it will become again a wonderful tool to help us act justly.
Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It is a wonderful thing to want justice. But let us make sure that what we hunger and thirst for is not something less than what the Bible calls us to, but is for righteousness. Because that is what will fill, what will, will fill us with hope and enable us in the present moment to do the good that is set before us in the time that we have. Let's pray.